0: This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu.
1: Hello, and welcome to Window on the East with me, Ben Harris, the editor of BNE IntelliNews. So I'm here with Tom Blackwell. Today is election day in Russia. Um to vote for himself because he believes in his own policies and I've been wandering around town I was just in the uh, in the uh, in the Banya and there again people in Moscow which is more cynical and the opposition here is slightly stronger but the you know the sentiment has come out is like I'm going to vote for Putin because there's no real alternative and there's a certain element of cynicism Uh, I think the turnout in Moscow is expected to be lower than elsewhere because it's more cosmopolitan, so people have more of a view. But at the same time, another thing I've taken out is that uh, people are not that unhappy with Putin from the standpoint of the whole fortress Russia and that um, who are you, the rest of the world, to tell us what to do and that Putin actually stands for a strong Russia and... People want that, they believe in that, and they are fed up of being dictated to, and there's definitely a strong undercurrent here of, you know, leave us alone, Uh, screw you, we don't need your help if you're not going to be friends, because we're Russia, and things are not going brilliantly, but they're a lot better than they were before, and Putin delivered that, and that is a real result. So he has this genuine support, even if you don't like his methods, even if the Russians don't like his methods, which a lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. But he has delivered, in a real way, both an improvement in life, quality, and at the same time, restored Russia's pride as a serious player on the world stage, which is something that people value. Yeah. And again, they're Russian, so they're like, yes, it's not going very fast, but this is Russia. It's always, life's always been hard. You know, as long as it's going in the right direction, and that clearly it is, Jim, mm-hmm. do, do you agree?
0: Well, I agree, I, but you know, obviously, uh, he's always been popular. I think people in, in the West make a mistake when they assume all of these ratings are trumped up. Actually, they're not. They're quite. They're quite real. A lot of people like him. But the more interesting is where the opposition is around this, or so whether it's fifteen percent, twenty percent, or whatever it mm-hmm. is. Uh, that's uh, what I've. The difference that I've seen here is that number one. I think there's going to be a lower turnout and lower voting from that group of people than there have been in past elections, and I think partly some people are a little bit just kind of tired of the protest vote or protest because that that doesn't seem to be an effective uh, way of of achieving any kind of change. But I think the other thing is that. It's um, the big, What's happening, for, for example, with the UK right now, this is a much bigger issue on people's minds than the elections today. So you're talking about the spies. So the spies and, and, and the response by the UK, this is what people are talking about in the kitchens this week rather than the actual elections, because the elections are what they are. We all know what the result will be, and so you know people are focusing on other issues which are more surprising and actually maybe more important. And what I can see right now is that even the most hardened anti-Putin people and very pro-Western, pro-liberal people are baffled by the UK response and just think it's, it looks outrageous, it's completely, completely over the top. And this sort of refusal to talk about anything like evidence yeah. is, is people, even hardened anti-Putin, pro-Western people are really quite surprised by that.
1: But this comes back to the sentiment, I think it's fueling the sentiment of um, screw the West, we don't need your values because they, they, they are, just, you're not doing this properly, you need to come up with evidence. Fine, make these accusations. We can see it is possible that the state did order this, but the way you're handling it. Yeah. Is uh, insulting, you know, just to accuse us of this because you know you think we're bad is unacceptable. We're quite happy to contemplate the evidence. We're quite happy to admit that there are people within the Russian elite. Maybe it yeah. wasn't Putin. Maybe it was a rogue element. You know, and we would say that's bad too. But uh, you're missing the point here. Actually, you need to do this in a credible. Grown up way, yeah, evidence. and and and
0: then Eve. So so there's the the evidence question of whether we can be a thousand percent sure uh, that it absolutely was the state sponsored, which is the, the the strong assumption and the only politically acceptable assumption one can have in the UK right now. But even when you get beyond that. It's, okay, let's, let's say you are sure it is, but the rhetoric has become so, so aggressive, and so much, it goes so much further than just being anti-Putin. I mean, because, you know, you, it's now acceptable to talk about, let's kick the children out of schools, out of, and this is just re- reference to rich Russians, or sometimes Russians. So it's, you know, forget Putin linked, forget corrupt, it's just everyone. And, and when it gets to that, that level of sort of anti-Russia hysteria, this is, this is hard to explain to people. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think that's the word, isn't it? It's hysterical. It's a yeah. hysterical response, and that's undermining the support here for the anti-Putin, mm-hmm. the opposition you know, mindset, because they're they're feeling now so in, uh, attacked by the rest of the world blamed, yeah. you know, as a group, uh, as a people. Yeah, that that's actually working against what's, you know the West is trying to encourage some sort of political dialogue and some yeah. opposition. And the opposition here, I mean, that's another take-out, that it's not just that people are voting for Putin because they like him. Um, there's no real opposition, and you could argue and justify the fact that Putin's undermined the opposition sure. quite yeah. effectively. Yeah. Nevertheless, the opposition itself has failed to produce any credible candidates, any credible platform, and that hasn't helped their cause. There, There is an alternative and you can lay partly that uh, at Putin's feet, but I think at the same time, you know, the opposition themselves are responsible for failing to come up with because uh, you know it's the same old, same old arguments that they come up with then, um, yeah. which yeah. is not credible. There's, yeah. there's no credible po- politician. The, the only person who's actually getting any votes other than Putin. Is the communist candidates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And really, rather than focusing on Navalny or Yavlinsky, the sort of traditional opposition, that he's the one. That's the way you're going to change things here. Is put one of the, you know, the communists which has a grassroots party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's also not ideologically acceptable, is it? I mean.
0: Yeah, I know, and I mean, it's 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 a difficult one to discuss in in, in a way because without a doubt that you can't the lack of credible opposition certainly a significant part of that can be attributed to the way the governed countries govern the way the media is it works and all that kind of stuff but you know at some point you have to say well it, you know it is what it is and let's still think about how about a path forward because you can't really change what's happened over the last 20 years what you can think about changing is what we do next mm-hmm. and in that and in that sense you know yeah it would be good if somehow the opposition could find ways of, of building more credible candidates who had an ability to find some kind of common language, who had some ability to agree. Now, what's happened with Subchak is probably not an example of that because I think that there still, still seems to be you know, quite a lot of cynicism around her candidates and probably quite deserve it, cynicism because it looks more about what's good for Subchak rather than what's good yeah, for Russian I, democracy. I she's
1: clearly thinking long-term. I and mean, she wants to build a political career, which is good. I mean, that'll be a diverse view of some sort yeah, um, and she's looking down the road at Duma elections and actually becoming an MP but you're right, I mean in terms of this election she's certainly there as a spoiler I think
0: yeah, and if, in some ways, if in, if in five years' time, uh, Subshak is still really going for it and doing everything she can to stir things up, then I'll probably take my words back and say this is more legitimate than, than I gave it credit for to begin with. But I have a feeling that it might, that might not be the case. I think this may be a bit more um, of a short-term arrangement that happens to suit.
1: Mm. What about the regions? I mean, Navani was touring the regions last summer and um, and there were significant protests. I mean, there were big protests. But, you know, there was a protest. There were people who came yeah. out. Um, and it does, and that's new as well because, it's, you know, politics has largely been a Moscow phenomenon. Yeah. And the protests such as they were and the large demonstrations we had 2011 were all in Moscow with a bit in St. Petersburg. Yeah, But this was the first time Rostov and Ufa and Nishitagira and all these other places actually had people on the streets yeah. saying something. Which says to me that you know, the the Russian population is still relatively politically naive that, you know, we take it for red in the West that our vote counts for something and that we're part of the political process, whereas here in Russia, they're still getting used to the idea that they can actually vote for someone else and change things. But we've come another step along that way to, you know, which was evidenced by these protests. Nevertheless, um, I don't see any Swell of real political opposition to the, uh, the existing regime that's complaining because of the falling life standards. Mm-hmm. I think the one, the one thing about
0: the protests is that my, my instinct, I, my, my, from what I hear and what I pick up, this is the one thing that Worries the government more than anything else in the world. You know, new, new candidates popping up or new people trying to form different parties or movements. F- fine, as far as it goes. But the moment that translates to people coming out onto the streets, that does really get people's attention. Mm. Uh, and you know, that I think their their whole sort of strategy is around thinking about how they minimise that because that's that's the one the one sort of event that they don't really quite know how to, to how to swallow.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, so, you know, as long, as long as there are any kind of protests, that's going to be something that they, they will be paying very, very serious attention to.
1: And also, uh, with those regional protests, I mean, they, they could stop them, but the, I, I definitely saw that if they, they didn't send in the Amanda special mm. riot police, and they didn't break them up, and they conceded that the protests happened, yeah. uh, and a lot of them were illegal, uh, but many of them were sanctions. So there was an element of letting people let off steam. Mm. But there was also an element of I think that you don't want to radicalize people and if you sent the riot police in yeah. then hit people then you would radicalize them. So no, been uh, very careful. No, as I as I say, they, they they
0: take this extremely seriously and I think they recognize that they don't have a, a silver bullet solution to making it all go away. And so that are not sending in Amon is actually an example of them actually taking it seriously rather than the other way around because they are, you know they know they need to be very, very careful around this of this one area and one false step like that can can prove to be very
1: counterproductive. And the issue of the youth, I mean, there's been actually two themes running here with the young voters. On the one hand, people were noticing at the Navalny protests that there was a lot of young people mm-hmm. for the first time, 20-somethings. And on the other hand, you've got like the Moscow Times running a series on Generation P. Yeah. You know, we've got 18-year-old voters voting today who only know Putin. Yeah. And a lot of them are voting for Putin Mm -hmm. and generally voting for Putin, you know, they see him as a strong leader, they don't know anything else and they know what their parents went through and they're looking, the country's improved, you know, we're proud to be Russian and so there is again, uh, but this is a Mm youth-based vote which are going to continue to support him.
0: Well, yeah, and and I think that that comes back to you know I mean look what, what the West thinks about what should happen in Russia shouldn't shouldn't be a bit, shouldn't be the uh, major issue here, but the fact of matter is the West is deeply concerned about who's in who's in power in Russia and makes extraordinary efforts to try and sort of shape uh, present its view here, and I think they just do it exceptionally badly. Uh, I think you know just again the the, the the latest events are just examples of how they alienate rather than actually reach out, as I remember. American cousins, say, to the people that are most likely to be receptive to the Western view on
1: this. Don't you think part of that is, I mean, I, I agree with you, I think it's extraordinarily badly handled and alienated uh, natural support that you could have had in Russia amongst middle class people who are becoming more interested in politics. Their lives have got better to the point now where they're not surviving anymore, but they're actually concerned about the way the country's run and services and the quality of government. And those are the people to reach out because those are the ones who are actually going to change things. And the he- heavy handedness of the responses, Boris, jo- um, Boris Johnson, Johnson um, being an obvious example, um, is a mistake. But then they're playing half to the domestic audience. You know, this
0: yeah, is... no, that's, that, that's true. Um, it's probably more than half to a domestic audience. I think particularly with the UK and Theresa May, this is her dream opportunity to look like she's in charge of something.
1: And that's been running through, um, particularly British politics and American politics, too, is, is that the, the assumption amongst the Western politicians that because of the lack of investment, trade, FDI, that you can actually whip Russia without any political cost yeah. and make yourself look tough. But the political cost, there is one, and it's being you know, manifest now in, in, in the situation in the Middle East, in Syria. Um, so that calculation is wrong. But you saw that maybe when May came out with the uh, sanctions such as they are, expelling 23 diplomats. Mm-hmm. She shied away from closing down Russia today, because that would have started a retribution that the, the foreign ministry here threatened to throw yeah. out the entire yeah. British club, yeah. and also not to touch the property, mm-hmm. Russian oligarch mm-hmm. property in London. And We've been talking about politics, I mean, we should talk a bit maybe about the business mm-hmm. in so much as the same day that she was giving that speech, across town in the square mile, Gazprom got 750 million euro bonds yep. away, and the state followed up with the 3 billion euro bonds. And I've been vox-popping business people here. They say that the investors just completely ignore this, for them it's totally irrelevant, that Russia's a great deal and that it's good money to be made and they're just ignoring the politics, of saying that, you know, there's no real sanctions. It makes no difference, so it's business as usual.
0: Well, I think people have also just had a lot of time now to get used to a, a pretty tense uh, sanction environment because, you know, well, this, is, this is not the first year we have big problems with Russia in the West. It's not the first time we have sanctions, and so, yeah, I, I, I do agree with that. I think that investors, uh, businesses that are on the ground here, they've to develop a skill to sort of slightly push aside some of the noise and focus on you know just real fundamentals of what's going on and so i think they've got quite good at that and will probably continue to be reasonably good at that barring some absolutely massive escalation which hopefully we don't see
1: last year you helped organize um or represented companies that that did two ipos Mm and i know you've got several more in the pipeline for this year and Maybe surprisingly, you know, a big chunk of the people actually bought those issues were Europeans and Americans. Yeah. You know, 40%, I mean, mm-hmm. significant shares. I mean, do you, do you think that there's, because f- for us at b and we're increasingly saying, that there's two stories running here in parallel. They're actually disconnected, and the gap between them is getting wider and wider. There's the political story, which is playing as much to the home gallery as it is to, you know, principles and values. And then there's the business story where the investors now are existing in a different reality. And looking at Russia's come out of recession, it's growing, the, although the stock market in general is relatively flat. At the corporate level, there's this consolidation process going on. And the winners from that process are actually doing extremely well. And the investors, are, you know, they look for returns. You know, they're cynical, apolitical, they just look for the money. But yeah. the money's there.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you look at the deals that happened last year, I mean, in fact, that, so the, sh- the the people who bought into it, the shareholder register looked similar to some of the pre-crisis deals, pre-crimea deals. So you know, you know, significant UK European, sizable US, and a smattering of other. Uh, so mostly international. In any event, and so yeah, that that was a, that was a, something of a sign that Russian companies were slowly sort of getting back into you know into the position that they had beforehand in terms of capital markets. Uh, still, they weren't that many deals. Last year was still it was still a small a, you know less than a handful. Uh, this year it looks like we 'll have more, but it, what, what they did with Mir and Movreci is it sort of showed that Russian companies can in theory get back into the markets and that there are investors who are willing to buy good stories and and so a lot of the companies that have adjusted to a new FX environment that basically got through the initial shock of the devaluation and the extreme fallen oil prices and sanctions of those companies are going kind to of back to where they were back onto growth trajectories I mean you know it's growing you know at a, at a, at a pace that no other European retailer is oh, for Russia, they, they sell shoes uh, they, they sell shoes in the region, so. yeah across, yeah across the country so you know these are businesses that are performing well and and so they've shown that capital markets can be can be reopened and they did reopen the markets and so this year we'll see a follow-on from that so companies that are doing well that are growing fast that are making money uh, sure, they'll find investors uh, that'll come in regardless of, I think, Parliament How, how much
1: of an impact do you think it makes? Uh, I just interviewed um, Gurev, the head of FOSAgro, mm-hmm. and, which is one of your clients, I should say. Um, but he, he was saying to me, look, we've been living now in a sanctions environment since 2014. Yeah. Uh, also got a corporate bond away a couple of weeks ago, five hundred million dollars, and he said it's five times oversubscribed, yep. lowest corporate non-energetic bond yield ever. Pre, you know, even from the boom years, it, they were paying less for their money, and he says I see growth everywhere, and they're me as a corporate leader, you know, um, there's reforms in the tax code, the government's supporting businesses, export oriented businesses, like I was through tax breaks and export agency. And again, this business story is, you know, he, he was very happy. Yeah. And he says he's paying, what, 30 basis points premium because of the political stuff. Yeah. But that's about it, and it's not very much.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, look. You know, two thousand and fifteen. I guess first, the sort of full year after everything went sideways. I mean, that was a scary year, and people people were walking around looking like zombies, and people just were sort of shocked and didn't, and didn't know what to do. And a lot of companies in Venice didn't actually survive. I mean, mm. the companies that had had the wrong currency mix uh, weren't able to get through that. But we've had we've had a lot of time for companies to get through the get through the worst of this, to adjust the businesses and adjust the way that they do, and the you know, and those that a lot of those who are back to growth are back to fantastic growth. Um, agriculture companies are going through the roofs. You know, you have and you have lots of different sectors that are actually performing extremely well. And for them, yeah, they you know they they feel okay about this. I mean, no one no still no one likes to see the headlines that are generated, but basically they can you know. Barring, barring a massive, massive, massive escalation, they'll continue to do well, and they'll continue to find money, and they'll continue to grow.
1: Yeah, good if uh, his name's on the sanction list, but he, he laughed it off. He said, look, everybody's on that sanction list, and therefore nobody's on the, the
0: You mean the list. latest U.S. sanctions list? Yes. Yeah, if you are not on that sanctions list, it means you're not a billionaire, so yeah. you're doing something
1: wrong. Last question. I know you've got an office in Hong Kong, and one of the really noticeable changes in the last few years and you could also argue that the poor relationships with the West is pushing Russia towards China and that although traditionally they actually don't like each other mm-hmm. um, but obviously the synergy between China and Russia is really uh, obvious and it's changing too because it was state-to-state deals and increasingly it's corporates to corporates and you have these dedicated funds like the Chinese investment funds which didn't exist before. Yeah. Who are actively buying minority stakes in all these SBOs and IPOs, which yeah. is all new. Um, given you have the office in, in, in Hong Kong and you're dealing with Chinese investors too, I mean, how do you see that relationship progressing? Has it gone beyond? I mean, do we have to now re- rethink how Russians and Chinese see each other as are actually genuine friends?
0: Oh, I I I don't think I would use the word genuine here and it also it's this this story will be a very slow slow burn story in that you know so russia Russians started to go out to china hong kong asia extremely actively when when the pivot happened and i think there was a strong desire to see things really take off and happen much faster than they have the reality is there's still not that much chinese money in in sort of the russian equity market right uh... russians would love to see that number be much higher than it is that being said, there are some things that are happening. It's just happening really slowly, but, you know, you mentioned the RCIF. Mir yeah, last year was a great, was a great example. They, they, they came in, they bought, it's a pure consumer play, they bought, a, they bought a 25% stake or something like that, and at the time of IPO, they they were able to receive a 100% return in, in ruble terms.
1: Uh, and so, you know... That so was, they're looking it was a, as a financial investor, I mean, it's just a pure to make money.
0: Yeah, and, and, they, and they have a number of other investments that they may well be able to exit as well through IPOs over. Over the coming years, and, and 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 that's great. That's important because, as you say, it's it's fine talking about Russia, China, bilateral gas deals, but that's kind of a different world. That's not what we're talking about here. But the more you can have people making serious money on the jet ski of this world, that you know, that's going to encourage more Chinese investors to take a look because they can start to see Russia not as a complicated, politically complicated neighbor, but a place where you can actually make money.
1: And that's how you build relationships. Surely, I mean, it's just cheap by jowl, work together, make money together, partnership. And if you make money, everyone's in a good mood, and so that places sort of attention. Yeah.
0: But it's but it's going to be it's it's going to take it, these things don't happen uh, you know overnight, and they don't happen in even in a few years. And so I think if for that relationship to really develop and to really see a sizable increase in cross border investment, you know, private to private, that's it's going to require more effort. The countries still need to get to know each other better and, and prove it's not. Not just an, a useful opportunistic sort of repositioning you know, while things are complicated elsewhere. But should
1: the West be worried about this relationship? Because it does seem that you know, the relationships with the West are catastrophically bad, and you've got China, Russia. moving rapidly together, I mean, there were joint military exercises, the Zapod, 2017, and you had Chinese warships sailing next to Russian warships in the Baltics. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's another aspect to this relationship where the Chinese are not happy with the West's treatment of Russia because they're like, this could happen to us too because we're also not a democracy. You know, we also don't play by your rules, your values, mm-hmm. and Russia understands us, so we're investing some time and effort into. And Russia China together is going to be a serious you know, block. I think it's, uh, you know
0: should they be worried? I don't know. They should certainly be conscious of it, and, and I think it's something they should, they, should, they should keep in mind. It goes without saying that, you know, if it, the, the longer Russia's relations are basically sort of dead or at a standstill with the West, of course, the more it's going to look for other sides. And as you say, up until now, China's been quite cautious on this. I mean, China was, I think, very careful not to be seen to be jumping too far into the Russia relationship because it still needed to balance out U.S. and, and other Western relationships. But the more that, Relationship becomes complicated with sort of, you know, people in Washington and all of that. You, can set, you could see that that could have a sort of slow effect of having you know, a new alliance that's formed that would be a genuine counter to the Western side of it. So you know, it, it, it'll not happen quickly, but it might happen in time.
1: Tom, fantastic to talk to you. Very interesting, always. Thank you. Thank you, Ben.